tonight? I'd like to begin with a story. Once upon a time, there was this guy by the name of Gotama, also known as the Buddha, who, before he was awakened on his path to awakening, had decided to do these austerity practices with his bunch of friends. And the hope was, or the vision was, is if I do these austerity practices, it will free my heart. And it was all these practices around restricting food, restricting nourishment. And he shares, he shares in one of the suttas what it did to his body. We're given this image of what comes from austerity practices. He says, my spine stood out like a string of beads. My ribs jutted out like the jutting rafters of an old run-down barn. The gleam of my eyes appeared to be sunk deep in my eye sockets, like the gleam of water deep in a well. My scalp shriveled and withered like a green bitter gourd shriveled and withered in the heat and the wind. And the skin of my belly became so stuck to my spine that when I thought of touching my belly, I grabbed hold of my spine as well. So here he's sharing with us this archetypal image of starving oneself in the hope that it will bring some kind of release or freedom. And as I reflected on this and tried to get a feeling sense for myself of this, it's like, oh yeah, I've noticed my mind do this to my heart where it restricts. It has this strange idea that if I starve this heart, that maybe it will become free. It's just a habit. And what does the mind starve my heart of in such an austerity practice? Of love. Have you noticed that? It's like it comes up with the self-judgments, the blaming myself or others. The, the rigid striving, that desperate, obsessive trying to figure out or fix. Like when I sense into those mind states, it is like devoid of love. It's starved of love, my heart, when that's happening. Maybe you can relate to this. There's a, a kind of austerity that the mind can get hooked by that's trying to restrict in some way. And I love that image because really when I feel the heart, it's like that, it's starved. And then the story continues, and this is the crucial turn in the story, where the Buddha says, and then I remembered... I remembered. I remembered when I was young, when my father, the Sakyan, was working and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree. And I entered into this deep state of samadhi. And I thought to myself, could that be the path to awakening? 
then following on that came the realization that is the path to awakening, I thought. So I thought, so why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities? And then I thought, I am no longer afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities. But that pleasure is not easy to achieve with a body so extremely emaciated. And so I nourished myself. And again, I invite you to reflect on this like I was, like, oh, how do I nourish myself on retreat? What's the nourishment for yourself on this retreat that's onward leading, that fills the heart? The self-compassion and the kindness, the nourishment that comes from patience, or the nourishment of ease and well-being, the nourishment of this container, simplicity and silence. Ah, and so I nourished myself. In in light of this story I'm sharing with you, I, tonight I'd like to share with you some reflections on samadhi, the pleasure of samadhi the austerity practice that need to be left behind in order to open to samadhi and the qualities that nourish, that nourish the heart to give the heart and the body in a way for that pleasure of samadhi to take hold, to to stabilize in some manner. So what does this word samadhi mean? comes from this verb in Pali, uh, samadhati, which means to put together or to collect. So samadhi, is, it's, a, it's a mind that's unified or collected. It's the quality of order mind that collects, unifies, has the mind in harmony. And the image I use to help describe this or to get a, a sense of this is the image of a room like this. So you have a room like this with all these people in it. And then, and then if you imagine that all those people are, for example, paying attention, or there's an opportunity to pay attention to a speaker like me, we can see that there's a whole spectrum of samadhi in terms of the room or the mind. So it'd be a lot of samadhi if all the people in the room are paying attention to me. And it's collected, it's unified around one experience. Or maybe most of the room, maybe 70% of you are paying attention. Another group's over there in the back having a conversation. There's a few people looking at that tree back there. Another group peering out the window. But most of the, of the hall is like paying attention. It's kind of in the middle here. I call that still a lot of samadhi. <laughs> I like to be easy on myself. Or let's say a lot of the room is like having a conversation over here and there and in the back and in the middle. But is there like maybe 10% of you paying attention? Still a little bit of samadhi. And then no samadhi, like it's just scattered. (laughs) Y'all are doing your own thing. 
there's a huge range to samadhi and it can be really interesting to start to become curious about this range. Wow, the heart and mind are just unified around the feeling of the breathing. Or maybe you've had this experience where there's a little bit of collectedness, but there's still thoughts going on in the background, but it's still centered around some experience. It's a little bit of scattered, but not completely. And then hopefully you've been on retreat this long. You probably know this side of the the range, right? Where it's just like, wow, I was so lost (laughs) those last 15, 20 minutes. This whole range... And I'll be coming back to this. Of course, samadhi comes as it comes, and I'm sure you're aware, you you don't get to choose so much. You don't have complete control, and yet you can influence by cultivating some of these conditions and nourishing some of these conditions. The other reason I like using this analogy is to point out that there's two ways, I'm simplifying this, two ways to get a group of people to pay attention. One, I feel like was used a lot in the elementary school I went to. Elementary school is those early years of schooling. Or it was more like uh, feeling forced to pay attention. And there was a little bit lingering in the background of, if I don't pay attention, something bad is gonna happen. (laughs) And it actually works to a certain extent. You make people alert. You put a little, put a put a put a little uh, edge there. Put the fear of God in them. <laughs> there they are. <laughs> so that's one way. And then the other way is uh, uh, through kindness, through ease and well-being, creating a container that's so safe. So it's like everyone in the room, all parts of the mind, just feel like they can settle and relax. And then there's this natural quality of attention that just rests, it stabilizes. And I want to point out the first way, it's quicker. It really is, but more brittle. And the second way takes a lot longer, but is by far more stable. The first one, I would say, is the austerity practices. And they can be so sneaky. I've noticed them trying to cultivate somebody where I'm going to tame the mind. I'm going to get it to stick on the breath. God damn it. (laughs) Judgment, the tight striving. And the second one is so nourishing feeding the heart with with love through kindness and self-compassion and and other beautiful qualities like this. So again, here we have this definition of samadhi. It's, It's a mind that's unified, it's collected. And to add some of what I'm sharing in this analogy, it's unified and collected within this field of well-being, this field of harmony and ease. And this is what the Buddha discovers. He has that memory that when he's a child, he had a taste of samadhi underneath the shade of the rose apple tree. And the pleasure of that 
And the first thing I want to point out about this skill, this art of samadhi, is how challenging it can be to fully and truly open to such pleasure that's not entangled with craving and clinging. That in itself is such an art, and we've uh, gone back to this again and again, distinguishing between savoring and clinging and craving. uh, And I'd like to share a poem that I, I feel speaks to this a little bit. It's by Alison Luterman. And the first line I love, she says, I'm scared. I'm scared to confess to happiness. Isn't that great? It really points to something. I'm scared. I'm scared to confess to happiness. I know the jealous fates in their dolorous heaven, how they love to feast on the heart. I know they've already marked the spot where one of us dies and the other stands open-mouthed and uncomprehending as dirt closes over our one song. But for just this moment, I want what I have. I don't know if you've ever noticed that there can be a slight unease or a slight worry or even a fear about fully opening to happiness or to pleasure. Or in this context, I'm going to say to the pleasure of samadhi, this, this wholesome pleasure. And it, it can be a whole range of something really deeply rooted of, I really don't deserve this to something that's really quite physiological, like if I were to really relax and settle and open my system, I'm not going to feel safe. Which is really quite, can be quite habit forming of like, it's not safe to really let down and settle. So then when I get close to samadhi and there's this invitation, you can feel the body kind of, and the heart kind of like collecting. It's like, ooh, yeah, a little scared of that. And then there's the, the also uh, an aspect which to me is a subtle kind of fear when samadhi lands, it's like, oh my God, this is so wonderful. I don't want it to go away. But there's still a clenching there. This is why it's such an art to come back to again and again. And in the last line of the poem, the turn of the poem, but, but, but for just this moment, I want what I have. Oh, what a beautiful description of contentment with what's here. And this, this is, I find, is one of the things that's so important to nourish samadhi is contentment. As I said, the proximate cause in the commentaries to Samadhi is is happiness. And I think a dimension of that is contentment. That's an entirely different place to come to samadhi to from. Because sometimes when I've wanted to cultivate samadhi, it's like, oh, I really want to get this. I hope this meditation will be a little bit calmer. 
And there's a little bit of that already almost starting with a wanting rather than uh, everything's okay right now. I'm actually content. Uh, Let me begin to meditate from here. This is all part of this learning, this art of savoring instead of grasping. And I think this is the, the skill that needs to be refined as practitioners. It's, it's like holding these questions as the researcher, as you the researcher, asking yourself, so what is the difference between savoring and grasping for me? What does that feel like in my body? How do each of them feel? And what do you discover in that experiment? These are the questions that you need to clarify in your own practice, in your own experience. To, in some ways, keep the questions alive, but also to have confidence in what you discover on this path. It's like that uh, famous poem by William Blank, Eternity. When he says, "She she who binds to herself a joy does the winged life destroy. She who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. She who binds to herself a joy does the winged life destroy. She who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. Can you learn to kiss the joy, the the pleasure of samadhi as it flies, as it comes and goes? So there's a particular kind of pleasure in samadhi. I I think it has a particular flavor to it or you say a particular palette of different flavors. Also, I want to point out that it's beautiful. One of the things I realize when I have a little bit deeper taste of samadhi, it's like, oh, I get to taste a particular flavor of beauty, something that's so beautiful. And and sometimes you can taste that beauty, taste the particular flavor of pleasure that comes with samadhi, even if it's it's a tender little flower that's just beginning to grow that arises and then passes away. And and so I want to explore this just a little bit around the sound of the bell, around tasting even a few seconds of samadhi, of noticing when the mind's collected, what's that like? So this first time I ring the bell, I invite you to notice more just the sound of the bell and allowing the attention to rest there. That's it, just to, to rest, to linger with this sound.
And now when I ring the bell again, I invite you to notice as there's the awareness of the sound of the bell, you might be able to taste. Ah, here's the flavor of the mind being just a little bit collected around the bell. And to notice the flavor of that, that that type of beauty or pleasure around the mind collecting, resting, lingering with the sound. Can you taste, even in those few seconds, the flavor of the collectedness, even if the mind isn't completely uh, uh, collected? Like for me, it has the sense of the mind feeling a little bit more harmonious and collected. There's words like stillness come or a kind of quiet or maybe a steadiness that's there and that flavor, that particular flavor of beauty or pleasure. Sometimes it's soothing. And when you really taste it, you might, uh, for those of you who are familiar with the seven factors of awakening, especially feeling some of the factors close by, like, oh, there's, there's tranquility that comes with that. Oh, there's the equipoise, the equanimity. So part of samadhi practice for me is, is I feel like my duty, it's like my duty is, is to simply behold it, to be, be touched by the beauty of samadhi. Because it allows me to open, and when I open, it, it stabilizes. I, th- I think this is in the numerical discourses, the, the Buddha uses this phrase, samadisa kalyana kusalo, which if we were to... Uh, one way to translate it is it's, it's one who is skilled in the beauty of samadhi. To be skilled in this particular flavor of beauty. It's a, a beautiful quality and a beautiful skill. There's a, a poem by the Austrian poet uh, Rilke. And in this particular poem, Rilke is a, a beholding the statue from ancient Greece. It's a, it's a statue of Apollo. And it's a statue in which just the torso of Apollo is remaining. And at the end of the poem, the turn of the poem, um, Rilke is so deeply moved by the beauty of it, it feels like the art piece itself, the torso itself, is calling upon him to completely transform his life. It touches him that deeply. Just the beholding, the lingering with that beauty. I feel like the beauty of samadhi, it can begin to call upon me or call upon us to transform our lives just through the beholding of it well the world begins to open
I think this is one of the benefits of, of samadhi is it, it, in and of itself, it's not the goal of this path and practice, but in and of itself, what I found is it's been so transformative, especially in terms of healing for me. Over the many years where I've really nurtured this, it, it feels like it's changed my nervous system. It really has that kind of power to it. And the way it's mostly talked about in the suttas is, is really as this tool. It's this tool that helps support this practice move onward towards freedom. Right? That samadhi, it stabilizes, it settles, it collects the heart and mind. And then the mind is, is uh, strengthened in this way. There's a stability for the mindfulness to land in. There's a clarity, a sharpness that can come with the, with the mind. He talks about the the mind in a concentrated mind as being malleable, wieldy, as there's a fluidity there, a steadiness there. And then it's it's used to become sensitive to the dynamics of suffering and the end of suffering. So not a goal in itself, but this this support. And in this Mahasi approach that that we're sharing with you on this retreat. Uh, there's a particular dimension of samadhi that's emphasized, which is called kanika samadhi. And I want to point out there, you could say there's many different dimensions or directions to go with ways of cultivating samadhi or nurturing it. And kanika samadhi is a phrase that comes from the commentaries. I know it's uh, in the Fasudi Magga, but it might, might be in some of the other commentaries as well. And it's defined as momentary concentration. So it's this cultivating samadhi with many different objects. So it's like the the mind is resting with the anchor and then it gets pulled into a sound. So it's with the sound. And then a sensation kind of emerges and pulls the attention. So then one is resting there. So it can be moving around the attention in this way. And yet samadhi is still um, being strengthened. This is really what we're uh, inviting you to do is to cultivate samadhi in the midst of all this. And really, all, all that you need to do is to keep the practice simple, as Bhante was really pointing to this morning, of keeping it simple, of just noticing. And then what you might notice at times, at least one of the flavors that I think can be there with kanika samadhi, is that the noticing itself can start to become, start to feel like it's more and more stable. It's like there's different objects that are arising, but it's like, oh, there's a, there's a kind of stability here. There's a collectedness in the noticing, in the mindfulness itself. It's like the, the samadhi is, is, is supporting the mindfulness in this way. And yes, there, there's another dimension of samadhi practice that's it's so central in the suttas uh, that leads to absorption, you know, full absorption, which isn't for the most part a, a focus for this particular retreat. One of the things I want to point out about samadhi is that it's something to be cultivated or to be nourished. And I want to distinguish cultivation from quantification. I want to point out, most of us probably live in a highly 
quantified dominant culture, a dominant culture that values quantification so much. You go to school and what do you get? You get grades that quantify how well you did. <laughs> or you have your Fitbit, right? I don't have a Fitbit. That, that, this thing that tells you how many steps you're taking each day. <laughs> how many minutes did you meditate for? And quantifying, it has its uses. But hopefully with those examples, can you hear how it narrows the world or the context to numbers in a very kind of rigid way. And cultivation, I, I find, is such a, a, a different sense, the, the Pali word bhavana. And remember, when the Buddha is using this, he's surrounded by, he's in this, uh, this agrarian um, culture by fields where there's crops being cultivated. Any of you who've had a garden, you know how messy it is. Right? Sometimes things grow, sometimes they don't. It, it doesn't fit into this small little world of quantification. It's something richer and vaster, it's something earthy about it. It's not linear. And this has been helpful for me to remember around the cultivation of samadhi to get a bigger picture of what that means to cultivate samadhi. Because often uh, the way that cultivating samadhi is talked about is that you have an object like the breath and just stick your, your attention there. It's so narrow. For example, when I look back on my path of nurturing samadhi, much of that nourish, nourishment and cultivation comes from years and years and years of being on retreat and learning how to navigate the hindrances. When you know how to navigate the hindrances, the mind's going to naturally settle. Spending three months just navigating the hindrances, you know what that's called? That's called samadhi practice. <laughs> it's, it's what we're doing here. And so often it can feel like, oh, I'm not doing samadhi practice, I'm dealing with the hindrances. <laughs> no, dealing with the hindrances is what's going to stabilize samadhi. It nourishes it. It's not a one or the other. This is quite important. Or spending three months learning the skill of acceptance, learning the skill of patience. Those are the qualities that nourish samadhi. Are you hearing this as a broader realm just than just sticking my attention on the one object? This has to happen in a field of ease and well-being and then allowing the attention and the mind to collect around that. And to remember that how uh, fickle samadhi is. Like we have these minds where attention, it's designed to move back and forth from one object to another. That's its natural tendency. And I'm sure you've noticed this where the mind begins to collect and then it disappears. Like that's the nature of samadhi. In case you haven't noticed, it's impermanent. <laughs> You don't have complete control over it. 
And when I think of this, what comes to mind, which is a weird thing to come to mind because this isn't so my realm, but what's the obvious thing that comes to mind? Professional American baseball, right? Don't you think about that when you think about cultivating samadhi? I mean, it is a trip. A, a, a typical professional baseball player, this is someone who has spent their life obsessed with one thing, playing baseball. So a good professional baseball player, they're going to be hitting the ball in baseball only 20 to 30% of the time. So to be clear about that, the ball gets pitched to them 10 times. They're going to only hit it two or three times. That's a a decent professional player. Hitting the ball four times out of ten is close to impossible in professional baseball. These these are people who have dedicated to their entire lives to like trying to get this down. A good day three times. Ooh, and I love how they score it. A baseball player who's sitting, who's sitting three times out of ten, they say they're hitting a 300 to make it sound really good, right? <laughs> and he's hitting a 300, maybe a 350. Nice and big like that. You have to think like a, a professional baseball player. Or, I only hit it three times out of ten. I'm not doing so well. They don't talk about it like that in baseball. So I want to be really clear. You're missing the ball for, far more than you're hitting it you're going to be spending most of your time on this retreat navigating everything that pulls the attention away from the anchor or scatters the minds since we're cultivating uh, kanika samadhi. And really, I know some of you will take issue with this because really it's not a fair comparison because most days it's probably going to be a harder game than baseball. Have you noticed that? There's like some good pitchers in this mind. It's like, wow. And boy, the times I swing and it just doesn't land. So this is, this is what we're looking for. Can you bat like a 200 or a 300 and then to celebrate? Right? That's a good day. And please don't keep track. This is just an analogy. You know. This is the framework that I need for samadhi. And to remember, you're going to be, since you're going to be missing a lot, it's so important to nourish the heart with kindness and compassion because sometimes that's just the way it is. No matter what your plan is, so coming back to this analogy of a room with people in it. I remember once, this was after, um, I was a monk after leaving that. Um, being a monk did not offer like a lot of career opportunities. <laughs> and I remember I, uh, I, I got a, I was doing some um, odd jobs and then I, I'd fill in by doing some uh, substitute teaching, which I want to say is like, if you want to test how good your practice is, <laughs> substitute teaching in public schools is like the great test piece. <laughs> yes. 
And one day I was uh, called in. It was actually just for one. I'm so glad it was one for, only for one class period. And it was a, a class of first graders. And I came in, and the, the teacher was just leaving. Somebody had come up. And she's like, listen, I have the watercolor paints out. Just have them do painting. And so I was like, I was feeling good that day. And within five minutes, it was like chaos. <laughs> I am not kidding. Like, there was paint all over that classroom and kids running around. Luckily, they're so sweet. They're trying to show me the pictures, but it was just like spilled all over the place. And I remember thinking, I'm so glad this is not my classroom. (laughs) It was a wreck. And of course, there probably wasn't a lot of wisdom of not self. I was just trying to not want to own the mess. And the turn was, was, I just need to surrender to this. And then I just connected with the kids, the ones that were running around and wanting me to see their, their pictures and their paintings. The class did not get more collected. I want to be really honest about that. But my heart and their hearts were so much more at ease. And I use this and I point that out that to remember the conditions, all the conditions that are needed for samadhi. Because sometimes when my mind is scattered, the idea of how to cultivate samadhi gets tight. It's like, how do I get my mind back to the breath? How do I allow it to collect just on the feet while I'm walking? But maybe what's needed is really just some kindness to all the little kids running around. They have the cutest paintings. (laughs) That's samadhi practice. It's much broader. The other thing I want to point out is, and this is important to know just for practice in and of itself, is that each one of you have different propensities on this path. Some people have a propensity. It's like their heart has a propensity to loving kindness or a propensity towards compassion where that really is the gateway for the, the heart to become free or a propensity towards samadhi or a propensity just to daily mindfulness, the propensity towards emotions and navigating emotions. We're all different in this sense. And and this is important to know that our minds are just going to have different propensities, for example, around samadhi. And being aware of when your mind creates a false hierarchy out of different propensities. This is so important. It's a way of honoring one's own propensities. So, for example, my partner and I. My partner, she has a heart and a mind that has a propensity towards harmonizing. It's incredible. She plays, you know, in this group, in this band, and then she's just hearing the song, and as the song goes on, she can kind of, she can improvise and harmonize, you know, with these different singers. It's really, to me, it's like, I can't even imagine doing that. And, and she has that propensity. 
And for me, I have this other propensity. That's something that comes to her so effortlessly. And for me, what comes effortlessly to me is like, I'm in the kitchen. I go over to the cupboard. I open the cupboard and I reach up to the top shelf and I grab a glass. She sucks at it. <laughs> She's got to get the, the, the step ladder or get on the counter. And I'm like, just reach, reach. I love her, but, you know. <laughs> Why do I share that ridiculous analogy with you? It's because it's so ridiculous to feel like somehow I'm better than because I can reach the glass on the top shelf because I have a propensity towards that because of this mind and body. It's just a propensity. Be aware of the mind that creates hierarchies. Jill shared this with us. Mana, the comparing. We're here just to, to cultivate the conditions to nurture samadhi in whatever way it's going to grow. So cultivating samadhi, nurturing it having this broad view of it, learning the skill of savoring pleasure to settle into it, to, yeah, to linger, to rest with experiences can be helpful. In this frame of ease and well-being, and the deep patience of staying in the game, no matter how many times you miss, And probably most importantly, to be touched by the beauty of samadhi, even if it's for a few seconds where that tiny little flower of samadhi emerges, just to savor it, to water it with your love and your attention. So may we learn to nourish and support samadhi in our practice for the benefit of ourselves, the benefit of others, and the benefit of the whole world. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit for a moment here. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.